City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, production. A warm welcome once again to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars, now in their 28th year, are coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is devoted to the production of the new production, Broadway's hit, The Producers. With the members of the creative and production teams, we will follow the show from its inception to a work for the stage through to the current production, which is now on Broadway. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. I think this seminar will inform and excite you as you see the process that makes a production for the Broadway stage. And now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our moderator for this seminar, a veteran producer and president of the American Theatre Wing, Roy A. Sumlio. <laughs> Thank you, Isabel and all. Um, we're delighted to have uh, this group with us today, sparing a few minutes with us, or hours. And let me just introduce you uh, who they are right away. On my far right is Tom Meehan, who's co-author. Who's helping Isabel? <laughs> I'm far left. <laughs> Tom Meehan. Next to uh, him is a man named Mel Brooks. Mel is a, a producer and a genius. And, uh, <laughs> Co-author, etc. Of this, I'm production. a writer. I'm a writer-director, but in the newspapers, I'm always um, comedian-producer. That's that'll be on my gravestone, <laughs> comedian-producer. But all my life, all I've done is really written and directed. That's all I've ever done. But uh, in, in columns, I am a, a, a comic producer. <laughs> well, he used to, he used to we'll make our own. We'll really make our own. There's a comic producer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make our own. Guy. Well, he's the funniest guy I know. Well, Roy, he is also the, our composer of uh, yes. music uh, and lyrics. We're going to hear all about what oh, that genius says. <laughs> <laughs> and on my right is Susan Stroman. We also call her Stro, who's the director and choreographer of the producers. And then on my left is one uh, is a producer of the, sh of the show, Richard Frankel. The general manager is Laura Green, and then John Barlow, who's the press representative of the show. Now, it's our intent to try to develop exactly the history of the show, how it came about, and uh, how it got to, to be this enormous success it is today. So let's start by asking you, Mel, give us the, the basic origins of this show, please. Um, it was a movie. We all know there was a movie called originally springtime for Hitler and then called the producers because um, Joseph E. Levine, whose company distributed the film and put up half the money for it, uh, tried, called all of the exhibitors in America, uh, who were Jewish at that time, 
and said, what about springtime for Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> Not on my marquee. <laughs> so he, he was soundly rejected. And then, so he asked me for another title. And I, you know, I, I didn't fight him. I said, Joe, you're right. I mean, it's just, it's too, unless you know the work, just to throw that title up there would be off-putting, to say the least. So uh, I thought of a kind of uh, salute and uh, irony at the same time in calling these two guys the producers. And, and it's always, it's been the producers since then. That was 1967. And uh, it was a perfectly fine movie. Can I back up, though, for a minute? How did you get to, to writing the movie? How did, I mean, you wrote and, and produced, directed that movie, correct? Yeah, I've, well, well, there was so, a, there so was a the guy. Beginning of that. Oh, uh, the true story is there was a guy <laughs> in the in the shucks. There was, a, there was a guy in the public library when I was doing I was doing a term paper, and he was writing something, and I looked over his shoulder and it said Bialystok and Bloom, Hitler. <laughs> I was fascinated. <laughs> so I so I stood behind him for for hours <laughs> making notes. <laughs> And this guy was very, I don't know who he was, but <laughs> I can never thank him enough. <laughs> anyway, I guess you want the truth. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, years and years ago, um, I worked for a, a, a fella. I he used to do shows. Um, every one of them was a flop. <laughs> he never had a hit. And he raised money by making love to uh, to these uh, dowagers, ladies, these widows who would give him money, and uh, they'd write out the checks to the name of the play, which was always cash. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd, 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 he'd raise money with these, these little old ladies. He was doing swell. He never had a play. Cash. He never had a hit. And... Uh, I worked for him, and he was—he was—he uh, wore an alpaca coat, a, a kind of charcoal gray alpaca coat, in the winter, in the summer, <laughs> and he wore his producer's hat. He was never out without his little producer's Hamburg. He always had this kind of producer's hat, and uh, he was an unfor unforgettable character, and I loved him. And uh, years later, when I wanted. To to do more than just be one of the writers on the show of shows, one of the sketch writers, and I said, I want to do something bigger, a piece, a, a, you know, a, a play. I began writing a play about this guy making love to these old ladies and having to produce a flop. It had to be a flop because he always raised more money than he could pay out. And if you have a flop, nobody asks for the money back. So that's, that's the genesis of it. And then one, what's the worst flop in the world? Well, how about a, 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 something about Hitler, you know, with all the Jews in New York? And then how do you, you get the world's worst director and then the world's worst actors? You know, so one you, thing follows So you it. put that into the film? Yeah, it all, it all worked okay. beautifully. I was very, I was lucky. Dustin Hoffman was going to be the first Franz Liebkin, the first crazy neo-Nazi. And he came to me and said, um, I probably won't get the job, but they want me to do uh, a screen test opposite my, my wife, Ann Bancroft. <laughs> we were just married, and I said, I said, Dustin, go 
Go, you'll you'll be Franz Lincoln. Go, you're a little mutt. I, they're not going <laughs> to. You've got the funniest looking little guy I ever saw in my life. Why would they want you in Hollywood? Go, do your screen test. You'll be back. You'll be back in two days, and we'll put you in, and. He got the job. <laughs> he got the job, and we were very lucky because a couple of days later, Kenny Mars, who played Franz Liebkin, walked in, and he was he was uh, Liebkin on the hoof. He was <laughs> he was the guy. I mean, he was this crazy Nazi. So that all worked out, and uh, I was very I was it was my first job as as a director, as as a film director. I I, I directed in, in the Borscht Belt and Summerstock and. And, and some of the, I directed the sketches on the uh, show of shows with Sid Caesar, you know, and, uh, not in the booth, but on the floor, you know. Um, it, all, it all just was a miracle, just like this show. Two miracles in my life, the movie and the stage show. Because nothing went wrong. We just, the well, right people fell in. We'll try to develop this, that. It d those things don't really right. happen, Mel. They don't really I know. Happen. <laughs> they, tell me they, they, they tell me it's a miracle. There are too many other people here <laughs> on this panel who I'm sure can contribute to that. Now, uh, who was, was the first person? It was a perfectly good movie. It never made a nickel. To this day, <laughs> I get statements from, it goes from one owner, movies go from one owner to another. People go out of business, they sell their library, which consists of a, a bunch of movies to somebody who's still in business. Now, uh, the producers went from Joseph E. Levine, AFCO Embassy, to Dino De Laurentiis, <laughs> Embassy AFCO, or whatever <laughs> he was, to um, a guy called Jerry Weinstein, Weintraub, Jerry Weintraub, to um, uh, some strange place for two days. <laughs> I forget the name. Yeah, and I, I think it was the Horn and Hard Art Cafeteria. <laughs> Just for, they bought it for two days, and then it went and it, it rested in a place called uh, Canal Plus, which is a French company, and they are um, the owners of the underlying rights together with myself, and they've been very cooperative on, on helping us with the show. So it's now a Canal Plus <coughs> movie, and my job is to stop them from getting the DVD out and competing <laughs> with our show. So that, that's my current well, problem. Well, <laughs> yeah. well uh, now we, know, we all know that you first brought uh, the, the script of uh, the Broadway musical uh, to David Geffen, I guess. Uh, David Geffen was originally involved. Oh. Now, when that... I uh, didn't bring the script. He, he started it all. He started There was no script. Okay. Well, we'll give David all the credit in the world. Well, he really... He really except for one fatal mistake. He didn't stay with the project. No, no. But, uh, but that, no, he, I'm going to move he on. Was, to he, had a, he had to bow out because he was. He said we have problems. You know, he's running DreamWorks. It's a big, big company. Um, he has much to be proud of. They have two Academy Award movies in a row. Oh, wasn't it? I mean, it was the. What was it? it was American Beauty, and then it was yeah. uh, Gladiators. Yeah, Gladiators. I mean, they they do wonderful work. They they need his advice, his expertise, and this, he's got to be a hands-on guy. And he said. Even though he started, he called me and said, you've got to do the producers. It's a natural for a Broadway musical. And he got as involved as he could. And then he said, I can't really be ha a hands-on producer because I'm going to be at, in Hollywood with DreamWorks. And you're going to go to Chicago. And you're going to be casting. And you're going to go to New York. And 
so he said, I, just get me a couple of tickets for opening night. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, he was, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, well, we're very pleased because, you know, he happens to be on the board of advisors of the American oh, Theater really? Wing, David, yes. And so uh, we, uh, we're, the only re reason we're sorry is that if he had continued as the producer, why well, we'd have more access to tickets, which yeah. would be <laughs> to, to, uh, to Richard. Richard, yeah. now you're a producer there, uh, uh, of the show, and there are others as well. How did you get involved to, in bringing the show uh, to Broadway? Well, after the, the long process of Mel and Stroh and Mike Ockrent of putting the show together and writing it, they had a reading, and uh, after the reading, faced with all the enthusiasm of every producer in town, basically interviewed, more or less auditioned all the producers to pick the people they wanted. Um. And we were chosen. Well, you are one of the Among chosen them. people. That's right. We are one of the chosen people. It's entirely appropriate. <laughs> uh, well, Stro, uh, you mentioned that you were involved. Now, did, uh, were you involved or, uh, first, or was Tom involved in the creating the project? Well, Tom and Mel, because they've done uh, space balls together and also to be or not to be. So they go way back. So when Mel, I suppose, decided to do this, you called mm -hmm. your good friend Tom. And and it started there first, and then... Well, I had done a hundred years ago, I had done um, some work on Broadway. The first thing I did on Broadway was New Faces of 1952. 52. Ronnie Graham, Eartha Kitt, uh, Paul Lind, Carol Lawrence. Well, they let teenagers write that. Robert Clark. Yeah. They let teenagers write that at yeah, the time. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> it was, and that was, that was a hit. The show was a hit. So I thought, well, that's what you do. Then I did a show called, uh, I wrote half the book with Joe Darian. Joe Darian wrote the lyrics to Man of La Mancha. And Joe Darian and I wrote the book of a show called Shinbone Alley. This was sometime some in the 50s, maybe 59, at the Winter Garden. Or no, it was at the Broadway Theater. It was a very big house. A little show. It should have been, <laughs> the, should have been at the Cherry Lane Theater. It was at the Broadway Theater. Eartha Kid and Eddie Bracken, based on the dawn Don uh, Marquis, Don Marquis, Don Marquis, stories about an, a cockroach and a cat. Delicious, <laughs> uh, wonderful stuff, but <coughs> certainly not commercial. So that one ran about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even get into the second act. Close the page four. Right. <laughs> and then I went, I did uh, the book for All American, which ran for, I don't know, three or four months at uh, the Winter Garden. And I still didn't... Uh, couldn't make a living on Broadway. And uh, then I went to, uh, I guess, I made my movie to producers. And <coughs> from then on, I found film a lot more comfortable and more profitable than Broadway. Broadway is a very. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was then. You know. This is now. This is yeah. now. You know, you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Yes. <laughs> you all it's are true. part of that killing right now. It's well, true. So Tom and then I met, I met Tom. When I was making movies, uh, Tom wrote two movies, To Be or Not To Be, with Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks. <laughs> we sang in Polish. And um, he also wrote Spaceballs, you know? So uh, we... I you really also wrote... Yeah. Tom also wrote Annie. Right, meanwhile, I wrote yes. Annie. Yes. Meanwhile, he wrote Annie on Broadway, so when I got involved in... When Geffen said, you know, could you do this? And I, I saw it and I called Tom and said, when do they sing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> why do they sing? So, I mean, he was right from the beginning. He was, he was in on how to structure, how to take 
this wonderful movie and destroy it. <laughs> so he, well, was, he was there. And when he Mel was asked me, it took me about a nanosecond to say yes, because I uh, loved the producers for ever since it came out. And I always thought it was a musical. It had, had all the elements of a musical. How did and you find working with Mel? I mean, I love working <laughs> with Mel. And you know, it's more it fun than. than but you had worked the before world. this. You, had you worked together on, on a, before the this. two movies? Yeah, right. that, that was about. We spent about three years on those two movies in the mid '80s. We were, I was out in California a lot. We had a lot of fun doing that. Well, I mean, your personalities are not exactly alike. He fell stuck on Bloom. That's yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, but I gather that the net result uh, has a certain amount of your your. Input well, no, the, Mel wrote the original script. It was an Academy Award-winning script. That was all there. We, we just did some reshaping and uh, changed it. He's, he's, just being, he's being modest, modest, but he's being true. Well, Stroh, then you got involved at some, uh, some point early on. Yes, mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm sure... Uh, We've been working for a while. Yeah, Tom and, and Mel wanted uh, now to come to somebody who has, can structure a musical and make, make it sing and, uh, right. and help guide them. Because, of course, um, uh, Tom did Annie, and of course he knows how to structure a musical. And Mel coming from this wonderful screenplay, trying to now structure it into a musical, I think was at first probably hard to let go of some things. And then, but very, once, very hard. But once he was introduced to new thoughts of how to guide it, he was off and yes, writing yes, music. Yes, Well, but for me, for me the challenge, the him. reason I did the whole thing was that the challenge was um, to write the songs. Now, when Geffen suggested, wisely at the time, you know, don't write the music, get a, get a professional. Get somebody who knows how to write music and, and lyrics and... You just stick to, to your, you know, what you do. You're, you're a comic and you're a comedy writer and do that. I said, well, I'm not going to turn the, in my own mind. I said this to nobody but me. <laughs> I, said, I said, Mel, I said, yeah. Who's <laughs> <laughs> listen when I call myself? I said, what is it? I said, I said if you're going to do this, um, make it exciting. Do what you've always wanted to do ever since you were nine years old. Write songs. So I said, uh, I was determined to do that no matter what. Geffen introduced me to Jerry Herman, who's one of the great Broadway songwriters of all time. And i have been following his career ever since the Milk and Honey, uh, that far back. Uh, because a friend of mine, Donna Pell, who wrote a play called This Too Shall Pass, which is on our <laughs> wall. Uh, when you see the set, you'll see The Kidney Stone and This Too Shall Pass. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just, <laughs> so, so nobody knows this, but it's, an, it, it's a salute to Donna Pell, and Donna Pell in, in, introduced me to Sid Caesar, and then Donna Pell was the book writer with Jerry Herman on Milk and Honey, so I've been following Jerry Herman's career ever since he began, and uh, Mac and Mabel and uh, <coughs> Lacage and what, Dolly. of course, Mame and Dolly, his bigots, whatever Jerry did was f fabulous, so I met with him at David Geffen's behest request. And I said, uh, David thinks, you know, he said, I love, my favorite movie is The Producers. I love it more than any other movie. And he said, but I can't do it. I said, why can't you do it? He said, well, he said, there's another guy who's perfect for it. And he sat down at the piano and he, and he said, let me play you some of his tunes. And he played 
blazing saddles and high anxiety, and I'm tired uh, from from uh, blazing saddles. And uh, hope for the best, expect the worst, big time for Hitler, princess of love. He said, that's the guy. And I said, I'm that guy. <laughs> he said, okay, you're the guy. So I went back to Geffen and I said, Jerry Herman thinks I'm the guy. <laughs> so Geffen said, okay, take a crack at it, but make the, you know, don't make anything tame. He wanted, he wanted a lot of dirty lyrics. Well, it occurs to me. It occurs to me that uh, maybe not everybody, since the show has just opened a few days ago, maybe not everybody knows uh, uh, enough about the show. So, John, you were good enough to bring us some, uh, br a little bit of footage. Maybe this would be a good time to show uh, the, uh, a little montage of, the, of what the sure. show is. Oh, so maybe we can ask uh, to roll the tape for that, please, and we can all get a look at, at it. Bloom, the two cardinal rules of being a Broadway producer are one, never put your own money in the show. And two, never put your own money in the show. Opening night, it's opening night. Professional music, and uh, it doesn't matter if. Uh, it, what, it, it, obviously, we didn't need Jerry Herman to do that. <laughs> now, that now, you took over for, at this point. It's uh, in, as we're getting back to our tale of getting the show on. Yeah. So I actually, um, we got my husband Mike Ocker and I got a call saying that Mel Brooks wants to meet you, and we were in uh, rehearsals for a Christmas Carol. <laughs> And we said, well, sure, maybe we can meet him next week. That'd be wonderful. He said, no, he wants to meet you now, tonight. He wants to meet you in the next hour. So, <laughs> Very oh, patient okay. man. I know, I know. <laughs> so we rushed home, and he came over about 7 o'clock. And I opened the front door, and there was Mel, the legendary Mel Brooks. We were so excited. <laughs> but uh, he didn't say hello. He launched in full voice into the song, That Face, that opens the second act of the song. producer. I just written that song. He had just written that song, and he just started singing, That Face, That Face. <laughs> and he waltzed right past me, went down my long New York hallway, and ended up on top of the sofa, finished the song, and then he said, Hello, I'm Mel Brooks. <laughs> so that's how we met. And and they, and they liked the song. They liked the song. <laughs> and then uh, he just talked about how he had some other ideas for songs. And, and uh, we both knew the movie so well. And of course, we were a huge fan of Mel's and, uh, and also Tom mm -hmm. from Annie. And uh, so we absolutely said right away we would meet and talk about how it could possibly be made into a musical because the structure would really, really have to change. So we started to meet. We, we uh, actually spent some time in yeah, London Mike, together. Yeah, Mike was so helpful. Yeah. He, uh, he, talk, he talked about uh, a love story for Leo Bloom mm -hmm. that would be on the stage. It would be very appropriate for the musical stage. 
and meeting this tall Swedish blonde, <laughs> and he, could, he could climb like a mountain. So <laughs> we, we went to London for about yeah. ten days yeah. and, and sat oh, and, in Mike's apartment. Yeah. And he, he was a wonder, wonderful, wonderful man. He was, he was he oh, died yes. at a very young age. He contracted leukemia out of the blue, and, and uh, he was doing well with it. And then what they give you drugs to lower your immunity and and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it just, uh, he, he couldn't survive it. And so we, uh, we, we, we were just, uh, it, was, it was a real, a true tragedy. And we what did John do, though? <laughs> 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 yeah. well, I come along much, much yeah. later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What we, we did is that we took the show, we asked Susan not to, be, not to be a choreographer, not to just be a choreographer, but to direct it. Because we'd, we'd just seen her work on uh, contact. contact. We saw rehearsals of Contact. We said, this young lady is a great director as well as a terrific <laughs> choreographer. And then she did so, Music Man last season. So, sensational uh, job. We begged her to take on both jobs, and, and she did it for Mike's sake, for her husband's sake. And, 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 and she, it was never-ending. She needed, she needed that at that point. It was important for her to really. He made me laugh. Yeah. For yeah. <laughs> and then we just we, we all glued well, together. Did you get any business advice at this point, or were you still totally in the creative sense, or had you thought about cost that Laura is a specialist in? I know she wasn't in on it at that point, but did you <clears throat> did anybody decide that maybe you're getting too too big or too expensive Not at yet. that point? No, because no, well, we, no, we we just went like like a runaway train until we got to our. April 9th, reading of the producers, and then uh, when, when David, David Geffen actually gave us the bad news that he wouldn't direct it about a week before our April 9th reading. We got Nathan Lane to do it, we got Gary Beach to do it, we got Katie Huffman to do it, and we, and we got a couple of other people, and uh, Glenn Kelly, our, our musical supervisor and arranger, was at the piano, and we did this incredible reading First reading to the to the world of the producers, and Laura and uh, Richard and uh, Rocco Landisman were invited, and all of these we had to get we had to assemble a bunch of producers in a hurry, because we needed I don't we didn't know we needed ten and a half million, <laughs> but we knew we needed at least a hundred thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when we got we got them we got them involved. Uh, you, now you called them all together. Who paid for that? Who paid for that? Uh, this man here. <laughs> yeah, it was actually. We I always have. I always have a hundred dollars on me. <laughs> <laughs> it was really. Uh, we had a studio and we had these it actors and we just made some phone personal. We did it ourselves. Really I made know. some personal phone okay. calls yeah, with producers yeah. that we'd worked with, and and uh, admired, and we had them come and, and listen to our reading. But we got it to a point where. Um, we wanted to hear it ourselves, read back to us too. So it's going to be helpful for us. And then at the same time, we needed now to find a producer, other producers. And that was just a, a year ago in April. It was so it's it happened was quite. It fast. was very helpful because everyone loved it, and we, the money was raised. But the other thing was that we saw a lot of flaws, and we then we, were able to we worked very hard. The you next sure worked them out. I tell you yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of work and new it was, songs. It was things. not a hit. I can tell you that. Yeah. Not that. Well, no, Laura, I, first of all, have you ever paid him back for the cost of that first reading? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, uh, you've been paid back. Okay. <laughs> she paid me back. Right. So then the next step was some, somebody had to put this into focus in terms of dollars mm -hmm. to decide if, uh, if it could be done. Now, did you, were you involved in that before the selection of, of all the producers? 
or uh, did that come? Was that what was the next step? You no. decided who the producers would be. No, after after uh, they decided who the producers would be, we all got together and tried to figure out a sensible financial strategy for it. Let me well, tell how do we talk about the producers? Uh, about the producers. Laura's part of a, a very important team. We sat and decided, instead of just having one uh, dangerous producer, <laughs> there's always one maniac producer, you know? And he says things like, oh, we're not going out of town. Uh, you, no producer wants to go out of town. They're all the same. <laughs> all producers are the same. Well, you could, you could do. We could, we could rent the studio in New Jersey, and you know, and then we could, we could get a taxi and we we'll go to New York. <laughs> they never want to go out of town. We, we had a, I, I didn't beg. I demanded. I said, you can't come on board if we can't go out of town. Because when you go out of town, not only do you work out the kinks and and and, and the bad stuff and cut it out and put new stuff in, but the actors get to bond. They love each other. They work so much better on stage. You can see the love on stage. They're familiar with the material. They love their, their costumes, their parts. And, and when they come into New York, they come in as a unit instead of a disparate bunch of actors with egos fighting each other. And, you know, out of town is critical. If you're ever going to do a show, take it out of town <laughs> or, don't, or don't do the show. Don't do it. So you amassed this. Yeah. You amassed this collection of producers, yeah. uh, each one with a, with a particular specialty that you felt you needed. So, Richard Frankel is a wonder. First of all, he wrote the best letter. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a great letter. He wrote a great letter. He was he was at the uh, at, at, at the reading and he wrote us a a, 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 a arrived the next heartfelt day. letter. I think he spent money for FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get that back? <laughs> FedEx? No, probably. <laughs> and, you know, what we did was I, we talked about the symbiotic relationship of the producers to the work itself. I produced a lot of movies, and I know what it takes to be a producer. It, it takes a love of what, of what you're doing. Without the love, if it's just business, <laughs> go away. It ain't going to happen. You gotta love what you're doing. Richard loved the producers. Rocco Landisman, who uh, runs the Jujamson Theaters, the St. James Theater, during intermission, we had a little piano, we, we did half the show. Rocco Landisman grabbed me and said, I love this show. You have the St. James Theater if you want it. I said, okay, you're in. You're one of the producers. <laughs> the next day, he wrote a letter, and he said, I said, okay, what do you do, Richard Franklin? I'm a producer. I'm a general manager. I manage shows. I do the bookkeeping. I, I, I make sure the scenery goes in and out of the theater. I mean, okay, you're the general manager. You're also one of the producers. <laughs> then uh, we said, we got to go on the road one of these days. We need a distribution producer, somebody who knows how to take a show on the road, and there's a company called SFX. They do that, and they do it brilliantly, and so we made them a producer. And then there was this guy, Robert Sillerman, who ran SFX and then sold it and ran it and sold it, and, he, and a very wise, bright guy who loved the show so much, I said, I said, just for your love alone, and your two billion dollars, he's one of the richest, <laughs> <laughs> the richest guys that ever I said, you're in. So we. We, we, um, 
What producer am I leaving out? Uh, Jim Stern. Well, you guys, you guys, I didn't know. Yeah. No, no, you, know, you don't know what you get. When you hire a producer, <laughs> you don't know what you get. <laughs> he is the original Bialystok. He's got 10,000 little old ladies in New Jersey. <laughs> I didn't know that. No, really, he'll explain in one minute how he raises the money you're going to be embarrassed. I think that's very important. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we, go ahead. Yeah. At some point, you have to decide uh, <laughs> how much Let him explain. How much, how much money do you <laughs> So, what do you want first? Well, well first of all, you have to know what your target is, and then how you got to it. So, uh, Mel, as Mel insisted on going out of town, I mean, everything that he said about going out of town is absolutely correct. It's absolutely the best thing to do. Um, you didn't want to generally, do it, by the way. Generally, you can't afford it. It cost us almost $2 million to go to Chicago. $2 million extra. So whereas we had been thinking in the beginning that the show might cost eight or eight and a half, after contemplating going out of town, we, we, we decided that we, we had better raise ten and a half. Mel was completely right. And in this instance, given him and Tom and Stroh and the material and the rest of it, it seemed like the, the completely sensible thing to do. In fact, it would seem utterly foolish and, and, and um, suicidal not to go out of town and test the jokes and make... and, and have the cast bond and the rest of it. So it was two million dollars, you know, well worth spending. We agreed right away. And so you created a budget for that time, or you just yeah, took that out sure. of the hat? No, no we, we it in at that point. Pages and pages. Pages. Uh, it's, I don't know, 20, 30 pages, the budget. Well, had you formed an entity at this point? Had you, had you formed a limited partnership or a. Or yeah, we had a, formed a, a, a joint venture a joint among the producers, and we had. Uh, uh, f f was beginning to form a limited partnership. How do you raise your money? How do we raise our money? <laughs> I have uh, three partners myself, mm -hmm. and one of my partners, Steve Baruch. You know, it's like meeting a little kid who wants your autograph. <laughs> Suddenly, an entire family from the Midwest appears on nowhere. <laughs> it, they send a little kid, eight years old, a cute little kid. He says, I'm in the book, I'm in the I say, sure. Suddenly, this entire family comes all over to taking pictures with you. One of them wants to marry you. <laughs> It's the same with him. He was the little eight-year-old kid. I didn't know there was this family waiting somewhere in New Jersey. Yeah. It takes a village to do this. These are not... I don't... I, Bialystok didn't do shows that cost ten and a half million dollars. Yeah. And were as complicated as these are today. Uh, so we have, over the years, we've produced 30 or 40 shows. 40 to 45 shows. And we have four to five hundred people who invest with us. And we encourage them to invest relatively modest amounts of money. <coughs> and we go to them when we're about to do a project. And we ask them if they're, tell them about the project and tell them if they're interested, they should contact us. In this instance, we had two million dollars to raise and four million dollars worth of interest now arrived. Explain your within. part of it was two million. Yes, our yes, part of the overall capitalization was two million. And four million dollars worth of interest arrived within four days. Um, How did you do it? You have more backers than, than yeah. Like so, so if we had any nerve, we would have collected all four million dollars, <laughs> invested the two, and kept the rest. What caused this buzz? What caused this at the very oh, beginning? The movie is beloved. Mel is beloved. Stro, Tom, the entire project had a, a lot of heat. And, and you, you only had to mention the producers, Mel Brooks, wrote the music, Stroh, everything else, and people uh, responded instantly. 
So the, the, having no nerve to, to take all $4 million and pocket two and <laughs> invest the rest, um, we had a lottery. And uh, 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 Steve uh, Baruch arranged literally to, uh, to uh, pick names out of a hat. And about half of the people who wanted to invest uh, did. So we have our uh, 200 people. There are uh, a few attractive little old ladies. <laughs> um, uh, there are dentists and stockbrokers and all sorts of nice people. And they each put up about $10,000. We restricted it to $10,000. People wanted to invest more, but we wanted to involve as many people as we could. Mm -hmm. right. in, in, uh, in, a f in the 45 shows or more that yes. you've done, have you ever encountered anything like that Never. before? No. Do you think anybody has ever encountered that? They've never that? had a hit before. <laughs> <laughs> I know a little bit about that, too. <laughs> we have had a few modest successes. But, the, but, but, but it's in truth be told, you, don't, you, you are not prepared for this. What, what we prepare for, what producers and general managers prepare for, is survival in the face of catastrophe. That's what we're good at. That's what requires all the skill, is, is making a show work when the circumstances um, are less than perfect. Uh, that's what we train for. That's what we practice. Um, this leaves one somewhat unprepared, this kind of success. Well, well John, this, uh, I don't know at what point you came onto the team, but clearly this situation poses a, an interesting dilemma for you. There's a great demand to invest in the show. Word is getting out immediately that this is a hit. How do you proceed then from a prom promotion, public relations point of view? Well, like Richard said, there was so much heat on this project. I don't think that there was a, a person who works in the theater who didn't want to work on the producers, and that's press agents and advertising agencies and promotion people and marketing people. Everybody sort of wanted to. A and the sort of beautifully ironic part of this is that my partner Michael Hartman and I just recently started this company. And we auditioned, as it were. We met with the producers a couple of times, and we met with Mel, and we met with Stro up in her apartment. We didn't go singing down your long... <laughs> 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 they brought me flowers, though. <laughs> and Bialis. And And it's a press agent's dream come true. I think every press agent hopes that maybe once in their life they can bring theater, they can bring how they feel about theater, to a large audience. That's what a publicist does, is spread the joy. And when it's, it's, it's as widespread as the producers is, and when it, it leaps off the stage and off of 44th Street and out into the mainstream media, you sort of feel as a publicist, it's, it's everything you ever want. It goes beyond publicity. It goes beyond the press agent. You're like, yeah. you know what? I can quit now. Yeah. This is, it's never going to happen. Did you ever have a, a show that you represented that was the headline? In the Daily News? <laughs> I've never had anything never that comes that close to this. Yeah. This is nobody. Do you know, was that, did you what? see the headline in the Daily yeah. News? Producers yeah. stampede. Usually it's cops slain and right. shootout yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rocks. You know, well, you never get, you gotta die to get a headline. Well, that's actually yeah. coming next. That's yeah. coming yeah. next as people yeah. try to get tickets. Yeah. It's gonna make the headlines again. Right. For months, but, I, I, in marketing meetings, I bored the producers talking about the line the day after opening, and I said, this is gonna be like my fair lady. This is, when I was a little kid, I used to read this book about the making of Fiddler on the Roof, and there was a picture of a line the day after Fiddler opened mm -hmm. outside of the Imperial box office going down the street. And I thought, that's, that's the kind of theater I always yes. wanted to be a part of. <laughs> and the producers, would, they would all roll their eyes in unison in these marketing meetings. Here goes John about Fiddler on the Roof again. Yeah. I said, no, it's true. It's going to happen. Well, actually, Can you imagine, Roy, the next day, though, what it was like when it felt like Fiddler, My Fair Lady, at combined, oh, sort there's, of in, in one day. There's never been a, there's never been a show with this, uh, this kind of reaction at all. I mean, yeah. we, we can remember the big hits, uh, whether it's Fiddler on the Roof or A Chorus Line or Phantom of the Opera, mm -hmm. but uh, 
Guys and Dolls and My Fair Lady uh, may have, in their time might have been that big, but nothing has approached this in any time. Yeah. Now, that poses a problem for you in, in a way, uh, because if everybody has heard such wonderful things about the show, uh, how do you keep the press from taking pot shots at it because it didn't measure up to the hype? This is one instance, and the, the singular instance that I can recall, both in my career and, and in my sort of years of studying the theater, where there have been no pot shots. And I think that's a testament to the excellence of the work. There is a feeling of celebration amongst the press and the community, a community which can, can be notoriously ungenerous. Total generosity. Yeah. Total embrace, total love, and I think that that is about one thing, the excellence of what's on the stage eight times a week at the St. James. I mean, that is, it is indisputable. Right. I, I think that uh, in some of the reviews you've opened last week, the, uh, the reviews are still coming in. Each reviewer seems to try to outdo the other in his accolades. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, First time it's, I ever got good reviews. <laughs> <laughs> when the producers opened as a movie, it was killed. Yeah. Very few critics liked it. Gene Shalit, he, he wrote for Look Magazine, he liked it. And I think somebody in Time Magazine, the New York Times destroyed it. Said it was the worst thing that could ever happened on, 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 on the screen. You know. well, I got a lot of bad reviews. I'm, I'm going to now try to talk about how, how it cost. How did this come about in, in terms of cost? Somebody decided they wanted scenery, somebody decided they wanted costumes. <laughs> and a lot of scenery. And a lot of costumes. <laughs> I mean, they, at, at what Before point? We, uh, we would do, a, as the director does, a breakdown of, of how many cast members after, after we had our, because uh, our reading uh, was only 12 people and they read a lot of different parts, but it's being able to hand them a spreadsheet of how many people I think should be in the company, how many singers and dancers, how many principals we have, how many understudies are needed or standbys or swing. So when, when um, Laura came on board, it was preparing that for her to then go away and find out how much all this would cost. That spreadsheet of how many people and what they would do also then goes to William Ivy Long, our costume designer, to find out how many costumes he would need to make this happen and also um, collaboration with Robin Wanger of how, how many set changes. So uh, she needed all that information first, so we had to be quite right in our decisions of what we ultimately wanted the show to look like before they can do their budget. And then giving them that information, they can go and now break down how many costumes there are and how many set changes and how many people can play a million different parts. <coughs> Stro wanted to get people that she'd worked with before that she trusted and and Robert Wagner was one of the first names that came up. He did Crazy For You. Yeah, and, and William Ivy Long has done so many of Stroh's shows. And so all these people were just Who's like... Who's William Ivy Long? <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's, one of the, he's one of the family of... William Ivy Long is a costume yeah. designer. Yeah, right. You just can't throw out a name without identifying Oh, pardon I'm intrigued. Who asked John to come on board? And who asked Richard... Who does the casting, in a sense, for the production? Who uh, starts with it? Well, Johnson Liff uh, yeah. did the casting, yeah. and they did the casting for the reading. No, mm -hmm. but the casting for he's going to do the publicity. Uh, oh, that was a producerial decision yeah. uh, mm -hmm. with, with the, the, uh, the agreement of Pro the Producerial Trump. means... <laughs> 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 Leave love out. The producers meet. That's right. <laughs> Who does that? How do you start with that? Well, we had four main producing entities at right. the time, and we sat down and we batted around our favorites, and everybody agreed on John, and then we, we uh, had him interview with Stroh and with Mel. 
Well, we were very we happy with, with uh, Barlow Hartman. We like we like yeah. those guys. Yeah, have they been Let's any other publicity agents that had applied for it? Yeah, everybody. Everybody, everybody. They all everybody wanted Why it. Everybody, all of us had, anyone that all of us had, every press agent <laughs> that all the producers had worked with at any time in their lives all wanted to do the show, of course. But I'm intrigued by that. Why, why is that? Apart from love for Mel, which you said, that's the answer. But that really is, there must be more to it than that. That this was such a favorite, this had to be had to be part it was, of it. it. It's a wonderful project. It's been known as a wonderful project. It's been the dream of all of Broadway that Mel turned this into a musical, for for thirty years. Everyone has had this fantasy that one day he was going to turn this including into a musical. Including me. <laughs> <laughs> let me so. let me continue on. Uh, let me continue on the thread, if I might. Uh, we now know that we have William Ivy Long, the costume designer, <laughs> and, uh, and Robin Wagner, the set designer, uh, on board. Now, you told them how much money they, were, they could uh, spend uh, on their work? We certainly talked about it and <laughs> <laughs> several I mean, times. You're talking about the two top people in their yeah. field. Yeah. So, uh, and, and actually, I'm sure they worked as collaborators with yeah. you. Yes, yeah, the yeah. same thing like Stroh said about the casting breakdown. William would take Stroh's casting breakdown and, and see how many costumes were needed for each scene and try and put a number to that costume and ideas of where they would come from. But did Robin tell you, for example, that, uh, what he thought it, it, would, it would cost, or did you tell no, Robin what it should no, cost? No, 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 <coughs> neither, actually. The, the, uh, the good news about these breakdowns, for example, is that Stro only, uh, uh, they only design 24 parts. 23, 24? 23, yeah. 23 parts, which is a relatively low number. When we <coughs> did Sound of Music, we had a cast of about 40. Um, that was the good news. The bad news was that because there were only 23 people, they have multiple costumes. So we have 320, 320 costumes, costumes. Yeah. Um, which, wow. which from, from shoes to hats can cost twelve to $15,000 each uh, in, the, in the more elaborate scenes. So um, there's, there's, there are various different variables that are based upon the requirements of the show. Since the structure of the show is similar to the structure of the film, we had, in terms of scenery, we had a, a, a problem in that the scenery had to be, uh, to some degree, cinematic. You go from one location to another location to another location and then back to location A. It demanded a lot of locations and it being comedy, if one w it, where it's, it, it, it had to be real, you couldn't do something abstract and get laughs. Um, you needed multiple real sets, which, which put a lot of uh, pressure on the budget, I should say. Now, what they really want to hear... <laughs> very, this is supposed to be very academic. We're learning how to do shows, learning who does what, how much money the costumes, and who makes it. They want to know, is, is Matthew Broderick fooling around with any of the chorus? <laughs> <laughs> That's all they want, these little kids. Is Matthew Broderick really in love with his wife? Can we marry him? Can he marry any of us? We don't even care if he's married. We want to marry him. That's all they care about. Now, I, think that, I think that maybe, you, yeah, that's a great lead into something, Mel. Uh, <laughs> I think maybe we should see that number that uh, about uh, oh, oh, I want to be a producer. Maybe that explains it all. Show that to uh, the audience. If we, we have some videotape, maybe the audience could take a look at that monitor at the same time, and we could see uh, maybe the set from the, a shot from I want to be a producer. You could turn, turn it. Turn it. Turn it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There we go.
I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer, lunch at Sardi's every day. I want to be a producer, sport a top hat and a cane. I want to be a producer and drive those chorus girls insane. Was that was the happily married? Uh, married. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica, uh, that, forget that question that Mel asked. <laughs> well, uh, let, uh, we want to really get uh, into some dollar talk if we can. So, for example, at fifteen thousand dollars a pop and three hundred and twenty costumes, did you really spend? That, uh, how much did you really spend for costumes on the show? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't all cost fifteen thousand. Oh, thank goodness. Thank Those goodness. you saw. Cost but, but did you spend over two million dollars? No, no, no. I would say we spent uh, less than half of that. Well, that's right. And how about the scenery? More than that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, I think that what's important to understand, uh, since Mel was the driving force, and you're going out of town, and you said it cost two million dollars more to go out of town. First of all, uh, did you recover that two million dollars while you were in Chicago? We didn't recover the $2 million, but we uh, offset it by profits from the Chicago engagement. Explain that. Yeah, what's the difference? <laughs> we, well, See that? it produces a we offset. It. <laughs> what, the hell, what the hell is offset? <laughs> we were a hit in Chicago. <laughs> offset it. We, we ameliorated it. We, we. Up a money it cost two million dollars to go to Chicago. Right. We How made much money did you make in Chicago? Eight hundred thousand. Uh, wait a minute. That's all you made in Chicago? That's that all we made in wait Chicago. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get that. I don't understand. We, we, what was the what was the gross? What did you gross? <laughs> what did you gross in Chicago? Oh, God. That one one. What did you gross in what Chicago? We gross? No, we grossed, we grossed three oh, sorry, eight. That was in that. Three what did you gross? We grossed yeah. three eight. What does three eight mean? Three point eight million dollars. Oh! <laughs> they didn't want to go to Chicago. <laughs> they grossed three million eight hundred thousand dollars in but, Chicago. But the trick is not what you gross; it's what you're left with. Oh you're no! It's with. what you what you're left with is called creative accounting. <laughs> <laughs> That's your bookkeeping. We don't know what really goes on. <laughs> we just we we just recipients of. Of little white pieces of paper with numbers. <laughs> oh, oh, and that offset. Oh, I see that offset that, and that offset that. <laughs> so you mean you made three point eight million, but the actual money 
very little. The three point eight million actually made about four dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> so you don't get anything. Somehow they worked that out. I can give you five. I think our problem, yeah. our problem is, Mel, you made too many movies. Yes. <laughs> we know the we movie account. Too. Why do I see all this on page six in tomorrow's right. podcast? <laughs> 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 uh, so to answer, the net cost of Chicago was, was about 1.2. Cost okay. us about a million, a little over a million dollars yes. to go to well, Chicago to test the show. Was it was it every penny okay. was well worth okay. it. Was all right. Sure. Sure. What about Tom? What did you do in Chicago? Oh. You don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> he looks quiet. He dresses like a writer. He's all kind of tweedy. So, and so when I get to Chicago, <laughs> that toddling town. Every, every waitress was saying, who is that guy? He's <laughs> <laughs> pinching the oil. <laughs> He's terrible. Oh, we can't let Carolyn see this. No. <laughs> what did you do in Chicago? Uh, well, I mean, Mel, other than the Mel, and I, <laughs> Mel and I worked on the show about 18 hours a day with Stroh. I mean, we were working. We didn't get much sleep. We, we got really a, worked on the show. Until although, uniquely, we went to out of town with the same score we came back with. We didn't replace a single song. We, did we replaced different lyrics. lyrics. So we changed, changed some lyrics. Yeah, did, you respond to, did you respond to uh, critics? Did you find the critics valuable in Chicago, or was it your own well, judgment? It was our own account? judgment. The yeah. critics were actually too kind to us there. The, the, yeah. They weren't almost, it wasn't even worth it to read the critics, because they were too. They, we knew the we show were, was too long. We yeah. were running long in Chicago, and the thing is, uh, we were cutting things that actually worked. I mean, the laughs, mm -hmm. and then when we would cut, then the next thing would land even bigger, so that the laughs would go longer. So we would <laughs> get ourselves into a, a bind because uh, we were we were cutting really wonderful laughs that were, but the show was mm -hmm. would have been too long to bring back to New York. So. So it was very helpful to um, to pick and choose what laughs we wanted when mm -hmm. we were in well, Chicago. But it was tough. To How did you, amongst yourselves, was there any friction to trying to decide uh, any of these yeah. decisions? When I first stuff? came into doing the producers, my first vision of it, before I met Tom and before I met Stroh, was basically what David Geffen had seen originally. It was the producers, the movie, on the stage as a play with music, with maybe the you needed springtime for Hitler, and maybe you needed Prisoners of Love, maybe. But certainly you needed one or two songs, and it would have been a play with music. Then when I met Tom, Tom, who had done Annie, and, and uh, some other wonderful stuff on Broadway, Tom said, no, 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 a musical is a musical. Then we met Mike Ockren, and Mike Ockren said, no, you've got to open, you need a curtain raise. I said, what's that? Well, it's, it's a little number at the top of the show that says hello to the audience. And then you have to end the first act with a great big production number. And I said, oh, I get it. <laughs> then Stroh Stro showed me that she kind of cleaned up my act. <laughs> she took all the vulgar stuff out and she, she polished me up and made me, made me pretty. <laughs> and, and, and she's a genius, she really is. Yes. And uh, she showed me what a musical what the audience wants and needs on, on Broadway. A musical comedy. It has to sing, it has to dance, it has to have beautiful girls, it has to look splendid, it has to be funny, it has to be rich. It, it has to really thrill the audience for two hours, two and a half hours, and she, she showed me that. And then in Chicago, we worked toward that.
too thrilling the audience. What's wonderful is that the man who created these characters originally was now going to make them sing, and I think that's why it adapted so well to a musical. But now Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom are going to sing and dance about their wants and needs. And uh, that actually heightens it emotionally. That was the big lesson. Because yeah. now That was the big sentence. They have to sing and dance about their wants and needs rather than do it in dialogue. Right. That was that was the big revelation. And because me. of that, I think uh, the musical actually you really root for their friendship and you root for their success as producers, which at more so than you do in the movie because it has been heightened emotionally because of the music. It works. It but works. Now the atmosphere uh, was sounds like it's very pleasant. Mel, there used to be an expression that when you went out of town, maybe the reason producers didn't want to go out of town was that. The way to punish Hitler was uh, was to send him out of town with a Broadway music. We yeah. took him with us. <laughs> and uh, and John said we took him with us. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't hear any friction. It sounds again like Stro, no, you're involved in a show that uh, worked well, too smoothly. Collaborative, very collaborative, and uh, everybody is w involved in it is very funny, very witty. The mm. entire company is filled with comedians. Even the yeah. the ensemble people had to sing and dance and tell a joke at their audition. Mm. To make yeah. us laugh. They had to tell a joke at their audition in front of Mel Brooks. Can yeah. you imagine? Yeah. And I'd say, yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Next. Well, so, I mean, they're very funny groups, so the, the atmosphere in the air is always filled with the comic electricity. Well, as, from, as a producer, you've taken shows out of town and, you, and in town that looked like they were in, in trouble and you had like, all kinds of friction. Right. Uh, why not so in this one? This uh, creative team, this creative team and this material, I mean, this is a blessed project. And, yes. and we saw that early on, and within the confines of the financial structure, I think basically see our role as service providers. I mean, we, our job is to give them what they need. That's what we are to do. Um, what they need also is is to to stay within within a, a financial context so that the show can work financially for the participants and the investors. But basically, um, we all saw uh, our job as as uh, giving them what what what'll help them do their best work. Well, I, and they I'd were sufficiently disciplined mm -hmm. to do that for you. Yes. Well, but you know, <laughs> I think we're we're at, I just yeah. want to say that. Uh, the producers and the many of them, and Richard and Laura, were so good to us. They let us do the show. They didn't step in. They didn't come to rehearsals. They, they never said that's they too expensive. Kibitz. You have to take that out, which no. is normal. But yeah. they never, they never did. They that. let us do the show, and that was a great, great boon to us to be able to work that way. They were just well, supportive creatively. Right. On this love note, I'm going to ask that we take a brief break, and uh, stretch, and we'll come back shortly. <coughs> at which time, we'll uh, we may have some questions from our audience. So it's okay with me. <laughs> this is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars on Production. Before we turn to our panelists, I would like to remind you that these seminars and the Tony Awards given for exits in the theatre are only a part of the activities of the American Theatre Wing. They are perhaps the most visible efforts, but the Wing is so much more than that. As a not-for-profit charity, 
The Wing's mission is to promote excellence in the theater and to provide educational and humanitarian services through the theater as well. It's a theater we all love, and we want to do as much for it as we possibly can. Our meaningful programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its 10-year history has enabled close to 100,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to theater and the magic it unfolds by bringing professionals into schools for workshops as a part of our Theater in School program. Our hospital program, dating back to World War II, when we created the legendary stage door canteens, continues to provide volunteer professionals to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and child care facilities. Grants and scholarships program provides financial support where it is so needed. We take pride in the work we do, remain grateful to our members and everyone who helps make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work strengthens the ties between the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this very great effort. And now, some of the people that help make the Wing what it is are on our panel today, and so I'd like to return to the producers and our moderator, Roy Samuel, president of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you very much, Isabel. I think that um, I like to kind of switch gears from where we were uh, on numbers and um, uh, bring up the subject of uh, what happened immediately after this raging success is that uh, you raised your prices, so the ticket prices are now $100 each. I think they were 91 going into that. I, I want to preface this by saying that um, I believe that it was a proper move. So this is not a critical uh, <laughs> statement. But I would like to air that a little with you. What was the thinking behind it, and how does it press? How are you handling with the press? You want to answer? Uh, um, uh, $100 is more than $91. <laughs> one oh. um, uh, we thought that that it was entirely appropriate for for one reason the tickets are being were being um, are, were available through scalpers um, widely um, at three and four hundred dollars a piece um, and the the sort of arbitrary price of $91 didn't seem to uh, uh, mean much. The value of the ticket seems to be much higher, particularly in an, in a, in a, in an environment where sports events, Knicks tickets, there, there are many opera tickets. The, 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 the theater is actually, it sounds odd, <coughs> but the theater is actually underpriced um, when it comes to hit shows. In, in all other uh, uh, fields of entertainment, the tickets are far more expensive. We also have uh, the $10.5 million that uh, we discussed to earn back for the investors. And it seemed like um, an appropriate time and appropriate number to, uh, well, to do. Well, uh, uh, see if you can develop this for me. I believe that you've done a, a Broadway musical, and it's a big success. Supply and demand should take over, because after all, this is not an illimaginary venture. It's a, it's a business, and you're in there, and so you place, place the price where you think it, uh, the public will pay it. 
However, there will come a time when the $100 uh, is going to be too much money for many people to pay. And I wonder if you have any plans, I mean, in, in a perfect market, you would say supply and demand would, would uh, uh, reign, and eventually you'd reduce your prices, perhaps, if the demand shrinks, and maybe you'd come down 90 or so, or you'd provide lower price tickets. Is any of that in your, fixing, in your plans now so that you can reach a broader market sooner than later on when, in, in seven or eight years when there's a, a little less demand? We're still dealing with the, with, the, uh, with the consequences of this great success, but I have no doubt, like every other show that we have done and everyone else has done, that sooner or later we're going to um, get to the very wide, extensive, and deep discount programs that we're all experts on at Broadway. I mean, generally, we're all chasing the customer very aggressively, and we're chasing the customer um, with advertising and with promotion and with prices. On many of our shows in the past, we've had... Um, multiple discount programs that have made the tickets widely available to people, but th that's going to be a time off, hopefully, for the show. Well, what I'm, what I'm hoping for is that you've got a, a product now which has universal appeal, and what better way to introduce young people to mm -hmm. the theater than to expose them to this? So I'm simply hoping that maybe there you'd find a way uh, in your wisdom to make this available sooner than later at, uh, to open a, an audience. There's uh, also a... a, a There's a, there's a scale of prices, yeah. too. I mean, the, uh, the top ticket price is $100, but the tickets uh, exclusive of Wednesday matinees go as low as $46 a piece. How much? $46. How do you know about that? Uh, it, just by going to the box office or calling Telecharge, you're given a choice. You can pay anywhere between 46 and 100. There's a series of, of price ranges based on where you want to sit. Not only where you want to sit, but what your budget is. So Do you, you have you any can't students? Do you have any tickets available an hour before the show? Standing room? We, we stand standing room. Room. But no, I, I think uh, what uh, Isabel Stevenson was referring to is a student rush, which years ago was a, uh, something very common where you could present an identification. And maybe that's something that could get into your plans. I know some of the other uh, shows are considering that, whereby you, to help build an audience at the same time take advantage of the huge success that uh, has been bestowed upon them. So, uh, One of the most amazing things you see if you go to the front of the St. James these days is uh, there's, a, there's a line for advance sale and there's a line for cancellations. Cancellations are for that day's performance, either the matinee or the evening. And I would say that that cancellation line is populated by probably 80% young people, people who look like students, people who look like they, they can't pay the $100 but are dying to see the show, a really tenacious group. And, and the box office and the producers work hard to make sure that as many of those people as is humanly possible are afforded the opportunity to buy a ticket for that performance. <coughs> but what's, it's, it's just great to see that the sort of young people coming out in droves to, uh, to stand in line to get in. I mean, it's similar to the way, uh, you know, the rent seemed right. when, it, when it first opened. And, and you, ha you had a, a, a large influx of young people. We see, it, uh, we see it every day on 44th Street. It's terrific. I wonder if you anticipate uh, groupies, such as several of the shows have had, had groupies. Uh, when you mentioned Rhett, that was one, and we certainly had... Tell them about last night. Last night, yeah. those groupies. <laughs> 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 uh, so you... No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't there. I, wasn't there. <laughs> I, was, I was there. <laughs> uh, there, was, there, was a, there was a group of about 30 guys wearing German helmets. <laughs> and they came. They had rented. A, they had tuxedos and German helmets, and they came to be uh, 
groupies to, to, to be like, produced like as groupies. Horror. Yeah, like the Rocky but, Horror but they, they pulled out a, in Rommel's kind of open, in a rented Rommel's, Rommel's car, car. Yeah. and yeah. with Nazi yeah. chauffeur. Yeah, we're not really pushing that. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had heard that at, uh, at some early performances, somebody came racing down the aisle, and uh, uh, someone asked uh, if it didn't happen when I saw the show, and we wondered if they were wondering if it was a plant or not. Can you tell us that story? What oh, happened? What, what? <laughs> well, racing uh, down the aisle to do what? Well, with his coat, apparently uh, shouting things at the cast. Was that it? That's the way it came no, to we, be. No, we haven't uh, had we we haven't we any, had one. any problems like that. But one one night there was a fellow there one who person. was of an older age that wasn't following the plot, and uh, he got upset when he saw he um, Gary Beach come on stage as Hitler, as he would. And if you're not following the plot, you would. Yeah. That's why within structuring the musical, he thought it was the show. He thought it was the show saluting Hitler. I mean, yeah, he was upset with ridicule. his wife because his wife wanted to stay. Yeah, yeah. but I, I think that was just he a one-off. Yeah, he wasn't paying attention. Just part of our our job was to make sure we structured it so the plot kept being laid out about we're looking for the worst show, the, the show that's going to offend to mm -hmm. to make a flop. So he was of the um, mind that he, he, he just was a follow up. He didn't get it. Yeah. But we haven't I mean, had any. He hadn't seen the movie either, so he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he went into the theater and he said, Whoa, well, whoa, well, we'll see a nice Broadway musical with nice, beautiful girls. And suddenly he said, That's Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? I mean, he hadn't paid attention to the. But he also what? was arguing with his wife because his wife was having a great time and she wanted to stay. <laughs> <laughs> she did say. So, she did. Well, there's almost 100,000 100, people have seen the show already. And, and that was yeah. the only and, and, person. And this guy was the only problem. So. Yeah. Uh, could we get back to this love fest that you had out of town? Because <laughs> I, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I find it hard. Tom, now we've been uh, out of town together. We know that shows uh, don't always work this well. Well, I'm still trying to. <laughs> I'm a uh, well, I've been out of town with a show with you, Roy. So we we've been there, Richard Rogers' last show. But this what was, was the name this of Richard Rogers' last show. It was show called I Remember Mama. And what did you do with it? Uh, we did everything we could to fix it. <laughs> it never quite came together. What was well, your job on the show? I was the writer of the book. Oh, uh, but I didn't know about Brooks. That yeah. was the problem. <laughs> but uh, I think we made we made six or eight months out of that oh, the Majestic did, yeah. Theater. Yeah. But we did not recoup our money. Uh, and we and uh, we didn't make uh, a million uh, or eight hundred thousand dollars out of town either where we no, lived. I don't I, think so. But uh, what but I, this was a love fest, by the way. We all got along so well. Uh, the, the fourth person who was part of the creative team, Glenn Kelly, is away right now. He, he was the other that person. He was as very, a musical, as, yes. as musical yeah. director. He was very right. close to the creative process with us. Yeah, he would well, take. A, I would give him a thirty-two bar, crude and rude, simple little song, and suddenly I'd be hearing. This incredible Broadway musical <laughs> come back and be because he arranged it and chorded it, harmonized it. And, uh, He's a wonderful arranger. He's done dance yeah. arrangements for me on many shows, yeah. and he was the very right person to bring on board because uh, the score had to be developed for a lot of dance mm -hmm. and a lot of set transitions, and uh, he was uh, really instrumental in, in helping us find that. And he was somebody who knew Mel's work very well. He's a very loved Mel, and he was a, he was a perfect oh. choice. Well, now, how do they stay on budget, or did you stay on budget? That's what <laughs> yeah, we, stayed, uh, we stayed on budget. We came in slightly under our ten and a half million dollars. Mm -hmm. Well, does that mean you over budgeted, or that they were very disciplined? Pretty disciplined, I think. Yeah. Disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very disciplined. Right. Well, I mean, you're all very experienced, and I, I'm sure when you made a, a budget of ten and a half million dollars, you knew pretty much what you were talking about at the time. And there's a reserve built in there. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a. It's not to say that there wasn't a. Uh, 
uh, dialectic um, uh, between the between the designers and us and Stroh and Mel about what we could afford and what we can't afford and how do we get this. If we really need this, we have to give up that. But the process seemed to work. I mean, Stroh surrounds herself, her production team, um, surrounds herself with gifted people who are um, nice and behave as human beings. And it, it, it isn't by happenstance that this was a collegial experience. Well, uh, did you, in, in the process of uh, building the show, did at any point you throw out scenery or discard costumes or? We, we rebuilt a few costumes. Mm -hmm. There are a few costumes that, that they got a better idea later and could be improved upon and, and were rebuilt. A couple we of drops. A couple, couple of drops couple were redone. We wanted to improve on. But there were, no, there were no major scenery rebuilds. And I think what that comes from is, is not only how gifted uh, Robin is, but uh, uh, also how well prepared Stroh and Mel were and how well they prepared everybody, how, how, how clear the vision was in their head so that everything was communicated to everybody in a very exact way. And the biggest reason probably is that we didn't throw out any songs. We didn't change any. It turned out that there were all the characters were fully formed. It wasn't as if characters had to be rewritten. Songs would then have had to be rewritten. Things moved from one act to another. Mm. We had no major structural changes to the script. And if we had had major structural changes to the script, it no doubt would have resulted in... Um, in big scenery changes and big costume changes. But don't you think it's important for all shows to go out of town and to have that in the budget as you do first night parties in the budget? Uh, under ideal conditions, yeah. Especially I think, I think it would comedy. be great. It's for I comedy, think it so I, I think it, it's, it's, it's very yeah. important. The sad fact is, though, that on many projects you just can't afford it. And what you have to do is, is uh, a much less perfect solution, which is pre preview for a long time in New York. Th it would have been terrible in our instance, and we could afford, because of the quality of the participants and the quality of the material, to go out of town. I th but it's I absolutely th what everyone should do in the best of all possible yeah. worlds. And we haven't really talked about the fact, too, that in addition to it being a great experience creatively in Chicago, the audiences were wonderful, and the press was wonderful. And the press back in New York was supportive. It was, as part of this ideal scenario unfolds, we should give credit to Chicago was a wonderful market for us. And as musicals mm -hmm. out of town can often be so dangerous because of the, the, the gossip and the, the word back in New York, the audiences were supportive, the critics were supportive, the editorial press was supportive. And then back in New York, you could feel that. You could smell it back in New York as it began. So it, it ended up being a wonderful, but, but it, could, you know, it could have gone the other way. I've worked on shows. I, I worked on a, a musical this season called Susical, which had a completely different experience out of town in Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, which didn't go so well with the press. But I, I just want to give credit to the audiences and the, the press. But let me ask something, John. Had it done its uh, previews and not gone, out, not gone to Boston at all, would it even have opened? Susical? I mean, I yes, it would have. But, I mean, let's say it didn't go out of town. Was Susical, I mean, could it stand the bad buzz, the bad hype, the bad word, and still, you know, survive in New York? It, 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 it survived because... It went out of town, and it got all that bad stuff in Boston, and they worked like crazy, at least to make it presentable for New York. Part of the right? reality of the bad buzz are the, are the reviews. When you go out of town, you subject yourself to your local reviews in that market, and you subject yourself to a variety review. So you are coming back into New York with critics having weighed in. 
That's mm -hmm. the reality. That's apart from the gossip or the editorial. Is, is mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're going to be reviewed. And Susical was not well reviewed in Boston by Variety or by the two main papers in Boston. And that's hard. To, that's hard. Yeah. That affects morale. That affects buzz. That affects sales. And that's, it's a crapshoot. You, you take your chances. You're saying, we're going to, to, to have the luxury of working on the show, but we are going to let critics. Whereas in New York, if Susical hadn't gone to Boston, it wouldn't have been reviewed. They could have delayed their opening, it, and it wouldn't, they wouldn't have had any bad reviews to come out from under But they would have had bad word of mouth. That's right. And that's the important thing. You hear in reviews, in the previews, I hear they're in trouble. Yeah. I, you know, the buzz. They're the going buzz. to change it. And that colors your, your show for you and your opening. Well, John, what are you going to do now that you have this enormous set of reviews and great word of mouth? <laughs> what are you going to do except sit back and smirk? <laughs> I'm only no, smiling because I know this is going to sound trivial. <laughs> do you want to know what the most complicated component of my job is now? Ticket requests. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful problem to have, but that so many people would love to see the show, and we have, you know, we have uh, a finite number of seats every night to uh, accommodate, and it's, that's, that's difficult. I think, I think what's important now is, is focusing on protecting the show and protecting all the participants in it and making sure that, uh, that every department on the show feels supported and, uh, and taken care of, both I I promotionally and protectively. And that's sort of my job. Is, is, is there a need for full-page advertising now? Richard? Briefly, we hope. I mean, well, there's, there's, there's you the want to do it once to celebrate the opening, yeah, right? We, we yeah. need to do a, a minimal amount of that, and then we hope that we won't have to do too much more after that. Well, uh, certainly that's true, but I think it's, it's well that you've taken that, made that decision. You, it's, it, you've become an institution instantly, so I think that mm -hmm. your word is right. You want to celebrate that. Uh, could we now uh, take a minute, and, uh, or, or more than that, and take some questions from our audience, okay. if you will? Okay. Uh, uh, first question there. Well, this is to Richard Frankel. My name is Janet Epstein. I was wondering uh, how much profit would that little old lady be making so far on her $10,000 uh, investment, if any? Oh, no, it'll take months and months for the, uh, for the money to be returned to the investors for the show to recoup which is, as opposed to years and years, or never and never, which is <laughs> also frequently the case. Um, so they haven't received, they won't be receiving profits for, uh, for close to a year. But I think what, what we're saying is that in time, and in, in perhaps uh, uh, within the first year, within that first year, that $10,000 contribution will be returned. And, yes. then, and then how are the profits being shared on this show? between the investors and uh, the battery of producers? In a, in a equitable but somewhat complicated <laughs> format. <laughs> no doubt it's equitable. Would you like to tell us the nature of the, of the of profits? It's, 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 I don't now know. Now we have a new show coming up about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's, that's the one I called Cash. Yeah, yeah. Is that the one called Cash? I think we have the, the swindlers. <laughs> <laughs> it's only fair to note that Richard Frankel was a press agent before he was a producer. It's, um, I mean, as, as you know, that, that the, uh, the, the company basically splits profits in general with the investors, and that's the case here as well. Is it a 50-50 split? Well, in general, yes. <laughs> Dollars are precise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure it is. These are, these are very complicated um, endeavors. Well, we've got, a we got a very sophisticated audience. They'll yeah. probably get understand. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, it's, it is a 50-50 split. Well, that's good. That's, that's fine. Yeah. Right, we have another question. 
Yes, my name is Ruth Greenblatt. This is for Mr. Brooks. Yes. When did you first realize that you were funny? Could you describe the moment? <laughs> I think, you know, I think that when that when uh, I saw faces peering down at me when I was in my crib, <laughs> and for some reason they were laughing. <laughs> and I said, I guess this is my job. <laughs> I guess I just have to keep making these funny faces for the rest of my life. But I just, I knew, I knew, it, it, it was just, it was in my, in my bones and my, my blood, and I knew that I was a funny-looking kid, and I was a, I made <laughs> funny sounds, mm -hmm. and I was meant to be funny. I just, that's my job and I know how to do it. Well, were you the class clown? Were you the class I was the class clown. I was always the class clown. I was the funniest kid at summer camp. I was always, I was meant to be funny. Did it ever get you in trouble? Sure, with funny? every beautiful girl I ever met. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I'm never kidding. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if this next question can cop that or not. Would you like to try? Hi, my name is Mary Barker. My question is for Susan. You've been involved in so many successes on Broadway. I'd like to know how you got your start and what was your first successful play. Well, I, I guess I've been in a dancing school since I was about five years old, and I took piano lessons and guitar lessons, and I grew up in a house filled with music. My father's a great pianist, and. Uh, so it, it, and all sorts of different types of music, and I was sent to all different sorts of types of dancing school. So uh, it, it's a perfect background to go into the theater because you actually have to know a lot about a different styles and different periods and decades and more historical facts about dance in order to support the plot and the time period. And I guess my first, uh, I did an off-Broadway show at the Vineyard Theater called Florida Red Menace um, with Scott Ellis, and uh, it was very successful one summer and how Prince saw it, and Liza, and, and I got to work with Candor Neb. And so then the next thing was, uh, And the World Goes Round, which was an off-Broadway show, and I think that's, that's what sort of um, exposed me to the masses, before Crazy Feel. Yeah. Let's go around the, uh, the uh, board here. How, uh, how did you get your uh, first start, Tom? Uh, somebody asked me to write Annie, a, little <laughs> a show about Little Orphan Annie. I'd been working at The New Yorker and, and, uh, in uh, journalism. Annie, but, Annie, but I'd always been stage struck. I always dreamed as a stage, you know, tried to write plays and things like that. But I hadn't, and I was asked. Uh, was that Mike Nichols who invited you? Uh, that was Martin Charnin. Marty. Martin Charnin asked me. Mm -hmm. I, I, we'd met, and uh, he's, he said, I bet you could write a Broadway musical. I said, I'd love to. And he said, I'm, if I ever get an idea, can I call you? And, he said, and uh, I said, please do. And he called me and said, I've got it. Little Orphan Annie. And I said, oh. <laughs> the worst idea I've ever heard. I don't, I don't want to do a show about a little comic strip, two-dimensional, two but we did it. And that's, okay, well. did that it was it a success? <laughs> right. Well, Mel, well, we've heard enough about how you started. I'm going to skip and, and, and move right. on. Richard. How did Richard begin? He was a press agent. Richard, Richard tell us about yours. I, I was always stage-struck. I had two mm -hmm. uh, inspirational teachers in high school, and I worked at... Uh, radio station in college and uh, worked off off-Broadway. La Mama is a stagehand and a stage manager and then a press agent and a marketing director and clawed my way up to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you seem to have done a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I am to be here. <laughs> Laura? 
Um, I actually grew up in a, in a very artistic community on Cape Cod called Provincetown with a lot of artists and writers and painters. And I worked for a very long time with the Provincetown Theatre Company before coming to New York and uh, working for various producers. Meeting Richard about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, brilliant. Well, how did you meet him? What, 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 on what? <laughs> <laughs> what were you working oh, as a boy? It was a show called What's Wrong With This Picture that mm. opened and <laughs> closed <laughs> quite quickly. And but our run has <coughs> continued. Yes. <laughs> and I went right on to Smokey Joe's Cafe oh, and brought Smokey Joe's How did you get your, your, your into expertise, New York. though? Well, how, how, would you, how did you acquire your expertise of being able to be a general manager? Doing it. Many Just years doing of it. doing it. Right. It's all on the job training yeah. right. mm -hmm. for all of us. Right. And John? I think I basically spent my whole childhood trying to get people as enthusiastic about the theater as I was. I, I sort of banged on my family and friends and strangers, anyone who would listen to say, isn't theater amazing? And I met a guy named Josh Ellis in 1989 who was a, a great press agent, is still a great press agent, moved to California. I met him on a Friday and he spent about six hours with me telling me what press agents do. And I thought, well, this is exactly what I've sort of been doing. I can't believe there's a job where you can pay to do this. <laughs> and at the end of these six hours, he said to me, uh, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going back to college uh, on Sunday night. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I want you here Monday morning at 10 a.m. You're going to come work for me. And I said, uh, are you kidding? And he said, no. And I went home and I packed my bags and I moved to New York. And, uh, Worked for John. It's a great story. <laughs> and, uh, and is it true? It's a true story. <laughs> 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 well, we're right. <laughs> it's yeah. a true story. Uh, we have time for one more question. Could we? Uh, can we hear that? Your question. Hi, I'm Erica, and I have a question for the entire panel. Where were you educated? College, high school, any dramatic? All in one place. Help. <laughs> <laughs> start. We'll go. So we'll I, go went, I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York and got. It's a kind of small liberal arts college, focuses on writing and literature, and uh, I got interested in writing there. It was a great place. I went to PS19 <laughs> <laughs> in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, then junior high school 50 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and then uh, a brief uh, a year at um, Abraham Lincoln High School. Another two years <laughs> at Eastern District High School back in Williamsburg. Abraham Lincoln High School is in Coney Island and Brighton Beach. Uh, by the way, Eastern District High School also has a Red Auerbach, the Boston Celtics. We have he and I and, uh, and, uh, and I don't know, maybe Barbara Stanwyck. They, they talk about her. But anyway, I went on from there to... Uh, to Virginia Military Institute. I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Little Jewish boy from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to end up at V. But I, I, uh, I, I did um, uh, a year's worth of college in six months. At uh, took many units at VMI, the Army Specialized Training Reserve Program, sent me there. And then when I was old enough to be killed. <laughs> they sent me to the regular army. I was a combat I'm so engineer. Sorry. I have to interrupt this yeah. wonderful panel. That we <laughs> <have>. <laughs> it's just awful. Well, I'd like you to go on and on and on, but oh, we okay. can't. This is and then, I, then I got to show business. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's going to stay after today. This has been the American Theater and Seminar yeah. on Working in the Theater, which has been coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. 
I want to thank all of you, this marvelous panel, the people who made the producers possible, and for their wonderful contribution of sharing their knowledge and time and talent with us at the City University, the Graduate Center, the City University of New York. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you.